You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Cooperatives, on the other hand, um, again, term gets thrown around a lot, can mean like cooperating, the verb, the act of it, but in the sort of formal business sense, um, means a business that is owned by the people that benefit from it. So there's different kinds of cooperatives. I think the one we'll probably talk about today that I find most useful is worker-owned cooperatives. And uh, a worker co-op is just a type of business where the employees directly own and control the business, generally on a democratic basis of one person, one vote. So ownership derives from working in the company rather than investing capital. That was Kate Strothman, a multidisciplinary business owner, artist, writer, and rebellious spirit. Kate is known as a go-to on alternative business models, building equitable team structures and being the person that comes to mind anytime someone says, I'm not sure that this has ever existed before. Today, we pretend like we're creating a partnership to sell country collectibles to Cracker Barrel to explore alternative creative business slash partnership models so that we can explore what's possible when it comes to doing cool interesting projects with other people. If you've ever wanted to do interesting projects with friends and family, but traditional business ownership models didn't quite feel right, this episode's for you. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, And I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Kate, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for four or five months now when we first had the idea of doing it. So really appreciate you joining me, and um, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, there's nobody I'd rather nerd out with about weird arcane business stuff. So thank you for having me on, Charlie. Yeah, the the weird arcane business stuff that we're going to be talking about today is maybe not as weird and arcane as you might think. It's actually a really common thing that happens. And so, um, what often happens when we have creative folk getting together and we have powerhouses getting together? They're like, "Hey, we both have this cool idea that we want to do, to, and you want to do it, and I want to do it." Let's do it together. So let's create a partnership. And if we're really sort of out there a little bit, maybe we are dancers or maybe we've just been in that space. Because I, I just say dancers. There's a lot of places that create co-ops, a lot of industry that co-op creating a co-op is a norm. So what we're going to discuss today are just some of the things we might want to think about as we do that. Now, Kate, I know a lot about you. We had a privilege of learning a lot about you over the last few years. But um, one thing that I wanted to pull to our audience is, at least from my perspective, you seem to be an unlikely person to be doing the type of business consulting and ideating that you actually do. Um, if I if if we know about some of the background stuff. Like how did somebody with an art degree end up with a bookkeeping and in part finance consultancy? <laughs> See, the art degree is one of the least... That is true. Esoteric. Parts about you, like how does this person that basically wandered around India for a while um, end up in this scenario? But yes, um, and I say that because a lot of times when we're talking about businessy stuff, it's coming from the MBA crowd, yep. right? Neither one of us are that crowd, nope, right? And so listeners probably know that from me, but they don't know about you. So tell us a little bit about how you got into what you're doing, just to sort of frame how this conversation might go. Yeah. Um... Kind of accidentally. And, you know, I think a lot of my perspective and kind of how I come out things, and I said art degree because I think I really always wear my artist hat first. And and what I mean by that when I'm talking about like this work and what I do is that one of the things artists do is that we pose questions. And we pose questions often without answers. Or we pose questions that other people never think about. And then in some creative fashion, 
whatever that medium is, then we seek to investigate, probably not really answer, because that's not really the point most of the time. And so I think, you know, that's sort of my like, approach or the lens that I work from that is why I'm definitely not part of the MBA crowd. Um, and then, as you referenced, I had a sort of long meandering path through my 20s, which involved nomadism. I lived in India. Um, I've taught stilt walking and I taught yoga and I've done a lot of healing work and worked in farming and local food systems and just a lot of like, you know, meandering things. And but I think what it all had in common was really looking at a lot of systems, um, building things, which is again artist. Um, and then so when I fell into my business, and this is pertinent today because it really came about through I met my former business partner in a coffee shop in South Philadelphia. We started talking, we were regulars there. Um, we started working some projects. They were an MBA, um, are an MBA and kind of combined our skill sets. And then I really just learned on the job, um, in terms of my expertise now and like the level at which I work. Um, and I've been doing this for 10, 12 years. So that's a lot of reading (laughs) and working hands on with businesses. Um, but you know, and, and I still spend a lot of my time outside my business on a lot of other strange interests and collecting rusted nails, as we talked about before we hopped on, um, and a lot of other stuff. And so I think that's always feeding my work. Um, and, you know, I also hung out with anarcho-punks as a teenager, and that really informs my political views and sort of my uh, the origins of getting involved in cooperatives and collectives. And so that's been a thread through my work, too. So I've done a lot of work with cooperative development and alternatives to capitalism and kind of solidarity economy work. And so, you know, I do both because I think, you know, I'm, I'm not I don't think everybody should form a cooperative right now. That would be a really bad idea. <laughs> But um, but the principles and sort of learnings from that world definitely inform my work in sort of more normal business structures. That's fantastic. And now listeners know why I said the art business was probably the least <laughs> um, the least weird thing, uh, weird and wonderful thing about Kate. Um, and just so a lot of folks don't know this, over the last, I don't know, period of time, six, eight years, more and more of my work has been actually in decentralized organizations and helping organizations go from sort of top-down hierarchies to either circle organizations or, um, you know, there's just a whole movement around flat organizations, holacracies, and things like that. And so it's really been pushing it from that direction, but not the at the root of an anti-capitalist. How do we create an anti-capitalist collective in a capitalist environment, which is a whole, you know, eight other podcasts um, that we're not going to be able to get into today. Another thing I want to add is one of the reasons I love talking to people who have bookkeeping businesses or who in financial services that really are hands-on with their clients is the sheer amount of volume of cases that a lot of times will come up. I mean, I'm a business consultant. I've worked with a lot of companies, but I don't carry, you know, 116 bookkeeping clients that I do all that work every month. Yeah. Right? I, I don't have that volume and rep under me. Data. There's a lot it's of data. data. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And in any case where we have a lot of data, converting it into meaningful information is always tricky. Um, and so speaking of data and information, you've floated a few words and I know you well enough to know that you were specific about the differences between cooperatives and collectives and things like that. So we'll get into those in just a minute. But we thought that the, and this was actually Kate's idea, that the easiest way for us to, to walk through some of these scenarios is if we pretended like we were starting a business together. So in our normal ideation, I was like, oh, cool, we could do a rusted nail business. <laughs> and then Kate informed me that that's probably a terrible market, right? Um but I was like, hey, so you know all that stuff that ends up on Cracker Barrel and all the sort of antique restaurants? Like, someone has to source all of that stuff. And so 
We expanded our business model to include rare collectibles, many of which will be rusted, but that actually have a business purpose for that. Okay, so that is our business. We sell rusted stuff um, to people who need that for decor. Don't steal that idea. Don't steal that for if you do. Let us know how it works, because I am not starting that business. You can have it, right, um, as far as it goes. Um, I think it's problematic, but we are going to we are going to go forward with it. So um, we're both really interested in this model. Like, let's do a thing, Kate. Um, now, don't really want it to be one of those things where I own it and you're, you know, sort of helping out. Like, I want, like, a partnership. So what, what are the range of options that we might consider for this? Yeah, so... There are many. And this is what we were chatting before. I was like, oh, God, this can get so complicated fast. So we're going to try and not do that. But you named you pulled out that I had named collectives and cooperatives. So maybe we'll start there of like the most casual way we could go about this is maybe the collect, you know, we can talk about collectives, which is a pretty broad term. But when I say that word, I more mean a sort of informal group. So that might mean like, you go into your garage, I go into my garage, we pull out all the weird rusted things we find in our garage. And then we like put them in a pile and put them in, you know, the back of a truck and shop them around to Cracker Barrels. And then we kind of just like divide up some money or maybe we have a pot and we have a party together. Like there's just an element of casualness usually in terms that that um, term in a quote-unquote business sense, because it's not usually used in a business sense, um, means. And so, like, we're not going to do a state business registration. We're not going to get an EIN number. We might deal in cash only. And, like, you know, so a lot of, like, the term collective, it can be used in more formal settings. But in terms of, like, my usual conversations with people, that's more of a like casual route that's that's really more about the like ethos of how we're working together. And like we might pull in Angela and her junk and like we each, you know, like we just it's it's a group of people coming together with a shared purpose, but without putting a huge structure around it. Cooperatives, on the other hand, um, again, term gets thrown around a lot, can mean like cooperating the verb the act of it but in the sort of formal business sense um means a business that is owned by the people that benefit from it so there's different kinds of cooperatives i think the one we'll probably talk about today that i find most useful is worker owned cooperatives and uh a worker co-op is just a type of business where the employees directly own and control the business generally on a democratic basis of one person, one vote. So ownership derives from working in the company rather than investing capital. Um, You could say it in verses, like the normal equation would be that capital employs labor. And what we're doing in a cooperative is that labor employs capital. So we're kind of flipping that. Um, And sort of similarly, like, you know, in a typical corporation, how many votes a shareholder gets is based on the number of shares they own. So you can buy power in that way. In a cooperative, um, you just get one vote. You might get more money than I do at the end of the year. Like the money doesn't always flow equally, but you can't buy more power in the organization through your shares. Um, And so, you know, Technically speaking, I'll get a little bit into the like weeds of this. Some states have legal corporate structures for cooperatives. So you can check a box on your form and actually form a legal cooperative. Some states don't. And then what a lot of, what I see a lot of people do is they'll create an LLC. So we'll create a multi-member partnership together. Um, and then we'll create an operating agreement together that lay that sits on top of that LLC. And that's what lays out the fact that it's a cooperative. Um, and a lot of that just has to do with like how, how we enter, how we exit, um, what's the intent, like, and then there's a whole governance layer um, of bylaws and things like that, that additionally would lay out sort of our cooperative intent and like how decisions are made, things like that, the democratic aspects of it. 
Um, so they can look pretty close, legally speaking, to just a regular LLC partnership. It's just that then you can put, um, you know, in your operating agreement, things like that, the the cooperative legal structures and elements of it. Um, and then we could just form an LLC and call it a partnership. And, you know, we could do the sort of careless thing and we don't create an operating agreement and we, we go along and sort of assume we're at 50-50 until Charlie, like, stops collecting more junk and then I've got, you know, I'm bringing more junk to the partnership than he is and I start to feel a little resentful of you. And I'm like, hey, why are we owning this 50-50? I've got way more junk than you do in this partnership. <laughs> so, you know, that's like, or we can create an operating agreement and we can figure out what our ownership percentages are, what our equity is, and kind of go down all that route. So I love that. Um, and, you know, you and I share the same thing. If, if listeners couldn't tell at the end that no matter what your business organization is, having an operating agreement is a really, I would go as far as to say, is an essential thing to have, not from a legal perspective, but from a perspective of wanting to stay in good relationships with the people you're doing business with and working with. And if you spend, like many of us do, 60 to 80% of our waking hours, like in work with people, you want to do the best you can to stay in good harmony with those people. Willy-nilly organizations that don't have an operating agreement are one of the best ways to get out of sync, mostly just because there's a bunch of unconscious expectations that people have and assume the other people have them until they don't. And then you can't reconcile them. Well, you can reconcile them. It just gets painful. Yeah. And I see it the most of like, you know, relationships change. They evolve. Businesses change and evolve. And so, you know, I see a lot of folks that can get pretty far along in their partnership without really dealing with these things. But then maybe someone has a kid or, their interests change or their family situation change or something in their life changes or they like get into rusted nails really heavily and that just pulls their attention away from the like other parts of the business. Um, so, and that's generally when like I see the most friction and tensions, which is, you know, people's attention, energy, risk, uh, contributions shift. And then even when you've explicitly laid it out that like you still can get friction because I think a lot of the ways the normal like 50, 50 partnerships, which is what, you know, this imaginary business we're talking about would enter into. Um, they don't have a lot of room for change built into the structures. So like, you know, you want to step back cause you're doing something else in your life and maybe you still want to stay in part time. Or maybe you want to exit entirely, and then we get into a whole weird thing about, like, well, I'm still working full-time. You're still getting 50-50 profits? Dude, that seems not cool. And you're like, well, I, you know, I've been sweating my ass off hauling all this junk around for five years. Like, I want something out of this. Um, and I think, you know, some of the, the, the issues that I really see all the time is that there's just a lack of flexibility um, in terms of like state changes and exits and things like that. Um, and it just can cause a lot of bad feelings for people, even when they don't, even when they really value our, their relationship and their friendship, if they have one too. And, you know, but the, the structures don't hold space to hash that out well. Yeah. I see the similar things when someone has a, seasonal change like life season change in their you know in their personal life or just as a career like you have to anticipate that every three or five years people are going to want to do something different that's how what's kind of what we do right um and it tops 10 years right 10 years is a long time in the context of what we're talking about to be doing roughly the same thing in roughly the same way right um so your model needs to not like make that a necessary evil. I would push it the other way of like, how do we embrace this change that is going to happen? Whether it's 
kidlings or rusted nails or disability to many entrepreneurs and founders don't think about the temporary disabilities that where most of us are going to go through at a certain amount of time. Um, and if our model doesn't change that and, you know, I'm out collecting a bunch of junk, but you know, um, the tetanus monster attacks me and does a number on me and I need to be out nine months. Well, what does that mean for the partnership? Like, does Kate just have to carry me for nine months? Or do I take a fraction? Do we get, do I get a commission on like the junk or do I get a, you know, what does that look like? Right. Um, we need, Kate, you know this. Um, I hate the term future proofing our business because for a lot of different reasons, I want to be future ready. And we might think it's the same thing, but it's not actually, right? It's how do we set it up so that like, you know, I get that the tetanus monster attacks me. I don't, and the nurses out there will tell me like, it's not a nine month thing, but just pretend it's, it's something that takes me out long enough that like in a reasonable business scenario, like if I got injured for like three or four weeks, that's not a major conversation probably with Kate, right? Nine months though, that's a long time, right? Um, two years, long time. Um, what do we do about that? Um, and so I love that you started with talking about collectives because we see those not only in a lot of creative spheres, we see that in farming a lot too, right? Where we have wool pools or we might have coat like CSA pools for the people who make a fruit. Like I don't grow all the lettuce. I grow 15% of the lettuce and contribute that to the pool, but I get 15% of the sale or a certain percentage of the sale because someone's doing the selling and that's their job. They're not growing the lettuce. They're selling and distributing the lettuce. So we work all that out. So it's a really great arrangement for those scenarios where you have true fractional um, commitment, right? We This is why musicians, dancers, actors, like why this is really popular is because a lot of the earnings from those come from that very like time for dollars. I grew, I grew a thing. I contributed a certain thing that we can't discriminate from the rest of the experience. Right. Um, can't discriminate my lettuce from someone else's. I've seen, um, like service based businesses, uh, where, you know, we all might provide certain kinds of marketing services or web development or something like that form collectives. And then, you know, you could create a cooperative too, and like really make it more of a, structured thing or have some kind of collective arrangement where you share overhead or like pool certain, you know, website expense, like things like that. Um, so it can also work really well with folks that have sort of synergy about doing either the same kind of thing or very different things that complement each other. I think that can work too. I've seen that with like different services that, you know, come together and, it, you know, it makes sense that they can kind of pull resources and energy and things like that. That's fantastic. Um, you mentioned a point in there, too, that in our own work, we probably end up doing a lot of reframing or at least educating about, which is that pay and power are not the same thing. Like those are different axes. And just because like a 50 50 percent ownership in the business might not necessarily mean you get paid the same. Correct. And I think, you know, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it's so often where people get real screwed up. Um, and and I think there's a lot to learn from cooperatives about this too, of the structures. And, you know, whether we were creating just a straight partnership for a drug business or a cooperative, which it's probably important to say we probably wouldn't create a cooperative if it was just the two of us. Like we'd need to pull in Angela's junk collection and that would start to make sense more. Um, but that said, I think either way, you know, both have to separate out what they're paid, what we're paid as producers and workers and what we receive from the benefit of ownership. Those are not the same. Um, and the benefit of ownership is where profit distributions or patronage dividends, which is a co-op speak term, pretty much means the same thing. We can think about them the same way. Um, you know, so we have to create separation. So, and I think this is often actually where I see, like I was saying, you know, you have to step back. You're only bringing half the junk to the table. 
Um, and, but you might still be a 50, 50 owner. And I start to feel kind of hurt about that or a certain way. Um, but you're like, yo, I still got 50, 50 equity. So, you know, I'm getting that pro, you know, we're, we're profitable. You still get 50% of that, even though I'm doing more labor in the business. Um, so that's what would happen in a normal partnership. Um, if we're doing this the right way, like I'm getting paid for my work, you're getting paid for your work, and then we're profitable at the end of the year. Maybe we make a hundred dollars from our junk business. You get 50 of that. I get 50 of that. If we're 50, 50 partners, the way cooperatives work is that profits aren't shared based on equity ownership. They're shared based on patronage and patronage. It's it's just a concept to describe how a member uses the cooperative. So like your shop at REI, which is a member cooperative, different kind of cooperative, but it's a member-based cooperative. If you shop at REI, you're a member, you buy socks uh, or new hiking shoes or whatever. At some point, if when their fiscal year closes, you get a little card in the mail that has your dividend on it. And that's that that's proportional to how much you spend at the co-op. And they call it something else now because I think they're trying to like gloss over the co-op-y thing, but that's a dividend. Um, so similarly, if we have a worker co-op and we're, you know, that's how we've structured our junk business, um, you work more hours than I do. Uh, you're going to get more of a patronage dividend. So it's really proportional to in a worker co-op to how much you're showing up in the business, how much value you're creating. So you create more value, you get more excess value. Um, so that can feel a lot more fair. Like if you need to step back, then, you know, if, if we're working the same, we, be, we each work, you know, same hours over a period of time, we're going to get the same dividends. If you step back and I'm working more, then it's going to shift and be allocated uh, proportionally. And you could do this in your partnership. Um, like there's not a reason why an LLC can do it. And actually LLCs have capital accounts, which is where stored value for owners goes. That's what co-ops do. Um, so there is a way. I have not tested this yet. This is one of my like theories I talked to with my lawyer best friend. Um, we work on all the same clients, but like, you know, there's ways I think that you could kind of jury rig this to be a bit more fair, um, and allow for more flexibility and sort of, uh, shifts of life seasons, like you said. So I'm curious, um, you mentioned that there's like a reasonable threshold where we probably wouldn't consider a co-op. Um, and then there's one where, so I'm presuming there's a period in which we're like, this is probably more of a co-op-y thing, right? So um, if we could, like, what are some of the conditions that skew us towards co-op versus more of a standard partnership? Yeah, um, <coughs> I think a lot of it's about number of people, right? So I've worked with pairs of folks that have started cooperatives, but they're very intentional that they're creating on-ramps for other people to come in. So, but more typically you get a group of four, five, six, like, you know, there needs to be a bit of a critical mass. Part of that is like, you know, we can form a cooperative and we can hire workers that aren't owners. Um, usually there's a dating period, even for new um, worker owners, like you have to work for a year and then maybe you can um, become a worker owner. Um, but there's a lot of complexity to the accounting and like a lot of extra work that has to happen. Like we have to track our hours and things like that, or we can't do patronage dividends. Like there's a lot of extra work involved. So if you're just two people, you're kind of adding a whole level of complexity that doesn't make sense. Um, possibly even with three, like a three person partnership, but I would say you need to get at least a trio together for it to start to make sense. Um, I think the other piece that's really important is planned owner obsolescence. So I don't know that all co-ops do this well, by the way, but ideally, you know, you're creating a multi-generational structure like that's one of the benefits of cooperativism. And I don't mean like we invite our progeny that we do not have. Charlie and I will not have 
like nepotistic things, but like we're not we're not creating multi generational in the like you know uh, family unit, but in that you leave, you could still benefit from the co op. Like you're not going to get patronage dividends, but there are other mechanisms for benefit. Like if the co-op ever sells or something like that or changes hands. Um, So there's a real intent around exits and entries like that. There's a really clear path for you to exit. It's not going to get complicated and blow up the business. Um, We don't have to do a whole valuation. Like you get your capital account, you know, like what's been saved up from your dividends and things like that. Um, and similarly, there's a real path for entry. So, you know, it's not that like you and I are trying to lock down this business and this is our legacy and like you and I are going to run this till we retire. Um, it's that we're trying to create a structure that's going to outlast us very intentionally and to benefit anybody that comes into work within it. So, you know, that's very different than a partnership structure. Like we might scale this junk business and we need to hire employees in a regular partnership. We're going to extract value from those employees and then we're going to get the profits from them. Um, we can distribute those profits back. Like there are mechanisms that we can borrow and like be more equitable about it. But at the end of the day, they don't, you know, our employees aren't, don't have that risk reward factor of ownership. Um, but in a co-op, we, from the outset, like in our structure and bylaws and things like that, we're laying out, how do you enter this co-op? How do you buy in? What's the share uh, cost? Shares, Member shares in co-ops do not increase or decrease in value. You set them at the same. So we say it's, you know, it's 10 bucks to get in here. Uh, even if our, you know, this junk business takes off and it's worth 10 million in a few years, uh, that share is still ten dollars. Um, it's not like a corporation where value changes and it gets more expensive to come in. And part of that's like so that we can people that don't have all that wealth can enter the co-op. So there's a you know there's an egalitarian principle kind of at play there. Um, and you know, and I think probably I left the most important thing for last. It's really about purpose, like. Are we, what are we trying to do with capital? What's the purpose of this? Who are we trying to benefit? Um, Is it just you and me? Is it a wider group of people? Is it, you know, is it in alignment with cooperative principles and the solidarity economy? Mm -hmm. Um, Or are we just trying to make a buck for ourselves? And those are very different purposes. Well, what this ties into in its deep core is that traditional business as we know it is about creating an enduring asset that appreciates, that's separate than the labor of the people and separate, like there's this other thing. So you and I, we, we decide, you know, um, we're, we're not just selling this rusted stuff. Like this is a whole brand and experience. Like this is an asset that appreciates and gets more valuable, so on and so forth. So it's not about the junk. It's not about the labor. It's about this third thing, right? And I can imagine that that's where things get tricky in co-ops is when you end up in that place where there is this um, thing that inherits value, not in different ways. Again, not to sell my junk or my lettuce, not my labor, but something else. I don't know if it does get tricky. I think it's just who benefits from that appreciating asset. So, um, like, I think, I'm trying to find my notes because I did, I wrote down a good question about this earlier today. Um, like, I think, you know, one of the things that cooperatives are really trying to grapple with in in the sort of capitalist critique sense um, is how do we bring disenfranchised people into owning the economy? How do we bring people that are not just wealthy people into the economy? How do we bring immigrants into the economy? There's a movement of people that are working on um, undocumented immigrant co-ops because that there are actually structures that will legally, you know, benefit um, undocumented immigrants and they'll be able to own their business collectively and, uh, it works that way. So there's, there's people working on that across the country. 
Um, so, you know, I, th- I don't know that it's like the appreciation, appreciating asset is the problem or like that becomes a problem for the co-op. It's just who gets to benefit from that asset. Um, I just saw today, Gimme Coffee, which is a pretty big uh, third wave coffee brand that's out of Ithaca, New York. They just, their owner, who is a sole owner, um, just exited to employee ownership. So he wanted out of the business. And um, so he sold it to the employees. And that's like, there's a real asset there. There's like, that that brand has a lot of reach. Um, there's, you know, they have a confidentiality agreement about the value and, you know, what the transaction looked like. But it wasn't small. Like, there are a lot of stores. This is, like, a fairly big regional brand. Um, And it's not that he doesn't benefit from this. He sold it to the employees. He's getting a return on that. He also created a loan and helped them to buy it. So, you know, there's a lot of mutualism happening there. But ultimately now the folks working in this cooperative are going to own that asset. And if they steward it well, maybe it continues to grow and takes out like all the Starbucks anti-union bullshit that's happening around there too. Um, and then it's just like, they're, they're going to get the dividends of it, not the shareholders, not the absentee owners, not the guy that doesn't want to do it anymore. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So you're right. I said it was tricky. I think it, it change, doesn't change the mindset. What am I trying to say here? It stretches the model to include some of the traditional business scenarios that I think yeah. are not necessarily where a co-op might start. Sure. Right? Um, but it's, that's great that it can be that flexible, right? And I was going to ask you about ESOPs, right? Which employees employee stock ownership programs, right? And so you mentioned Gimme Coffee, which essentially did it at 100%, which is unusual, right? Um, for the employees to, for that much. Usually there's a certain amount of the company that it's just the employees own that um, and it could work in different ways, right? So that's a super cool way because it shows how, you know, and I'm, I'm glad we're talking about the purpose there, um, is that why why I'm interested in talking about this generally, besides talking to you, Kate, and learning more about co-ops, is we're at a point to where we can consider different models of wealth creation, different models of um, power and partnership, different models of sustainable practices that still put food on people's tables, right? Um, I think these are under-considered options, like... I know through a lot of the, you and I have talked about this too, when it comes to crypto and that sort of thing, like there's a lot of really wild promises happening in there. Most of them seem like speculation, yep. um, but at, and at its core, there can be some of these types of things. It's just rethinking about how we transact, how we create wealth, what wealth is, what is money, right? And when you start pushing against those, you start seeing that maybe this way where we create an LLC or we create a, we create a thing that me and Kate own and then we employ people that then don't benefit from sort of the value of what's being created. Like there are different ways we can do that. Um, both via technology, but also this stuff has been around since before capitalism anyways. Right. So it's not new. It's just, I think becoming something that we can talk about more because there are more, possibilities. And I think, you you know, you might be glancing at something that I encounter a lot in the, the folks that I work with that are very in, interested in alternative business models and things like that, which is that I identify as an anarchist anti-capitalist in my sort of political orientation. I don't believe that all markets are bad. I don't believe that wealth creation is bad. I don't think that we should all be resigning ourselves to poverty. Like, you know, I I encounter a lot of owners that have that, you know, they really want to do good with their business. They really want to benefit the, the larger ecosystem that they interact with. And Speaking of data, like I get under the the hood and it's like, oh, you're paying everybody really well except yourself. Like, what's that all about? And there's a real aversion to money often, which makes sense. Like, and some of that's trauma and some of that's like 
like not wanting to touch the beast and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, like the solidarity economy is not about like everybody does well, but not me. <laughs> it's like, we're really trying to like level the plate. Like we, we want everybody to have their needs met. So it's not that like wealth creation is a problem or that having a business, you know, I don't think scale is a problem either. Uh, relentless, endless scale that harms the environment. Yes, that's a problem. But like, there's some businesses that only really work at scale and scale has a lot of benefits. And it's not that that's bad. It's just like, again, who benefits from it? Um, I mean, it, it becomes about equity. It becomes about, well, equity, I have to be careful, fairness, right? Because equity is used in different ways in the business concept. It becomes about fairness, transparency, um, power sharing, you know, sustainability, um, and on that last note that you mentioned, I'm so glad you brought that up too, because so many partners or founders or solo founders assume that like I can pay myself less now and pay my employees more because there's some point in which that's going to reconcile. Like I'm going to sell my business or it's going to do something. It usually doesn't work that way. <laughs> usually does not yeah. work that way. Right. Um, it turns out you know, beyond the scope of today's conversation, it's really hard to sell your business. Really hard. Right. And I think, you know, back to kind of an earlier point, um, I think a lot of the friction that I see in partnerships and like shift, you know, seasonal life shifts, um, I've seen this come up quite a bit with a few people in the last year where somebody wants to step back and the owners have been underpaying. They haven't been paying themselves market. So they want to step back and be made whole but the business actually doesn't have enough money to do that. And part of that is because they've been under, you know, there's like financial structural issues that have been happening. So it's, they're like, I want to, val- you know, let's do the valuation and figure out what you can buy me out at. And the answer is like, not much. Or if you really did this, you're going to tank the business and then you're going to get nothing. Nobody's getting anything. So, and there can be a lot of like resentment and frustration there. And a lot of it's just, I think, you know, it's that feeling of like, I've been pouring blood, sweat and tears and getting like, not enough money uh, all these years. And now I'm, you know, I want my cake back. And it's like, well, the cake's not there anymore. And the cake was not, you never built, you never baked that cake. Um, And that can create a lot of friction and bad feelings. Well, yeah, and I think for me it was Greg Crabtree and what's the name of the book? Kate, you'll probably remember. Simple Numbers. Simple Numbers, thank you. I love Uh, Uncle Greg. (laughs) Uncle Greg, I love Uncle Greg. So if you're curious about this, you want to get better about managing the the numbers of your partnership or your business, um, Simple Numbers is a great book. But his point is generally like if you can't afford to pay – what someone else would need to do this job. Like you're not paying yourself there. You've got a problem. You don't have a profitable business. And unfortunately a lot of owners and single owners, multi-owners would be like, we've got a profitable business, but we're not paying ourselves what it would take someone else to do this job. Guess what? You don't have a profitable business. And you're subsidizing it with free labor, which will feel bad and resentful at some point in the future, if it doesn't already. Um, But Yeah. And then, you know, if you get fed up with that scenario, you're kind of screwed. Uh, Like you're not going to get your return if you've not been running, you know, the business hasn't been functioning. It doesn't all of a sudden have this value you can take with you when you want to exit. It's like, no, the the business didn't, you didn't build that. Potentially. I mean, what we're looking at here is when we're looking at a business acquisition, Someone who wants to buy your business doesn't want to buy an unpaid job. Sure. No one would do that. So if as an owner, you basically are an underpaid job, let's put it that way, right? If you as an owner have been doing an underpaid job and then you expect to sell that business or exit that business, whether it's to your employees or to your other partners, everyone rationally is going to say, this does not make sense. So um, conversation for another day. Maybe we'll have another conversation like about that particular piece. But until you can, if you can't make yourself whole yep. in the short term, you're probably going to be unlikely to make yourself whole in the long term either. Yep. And then, I mean, I think the other scenario that happens about that is like the person leaving gets 
real bullish about it and they do take the buyout money with them and it really harms the business and that's hard to recover from. Um, and those relationships don't recover either to, you know, obviously, but you know, there, there are other ways. I think we just need to rethink the structures and how we're building flexibility into them. Um, because the ways that we've been building them don't really work very well. Yeah, um, we've had a several centuries of building under a shareholder capitalism model that has certain assumptions, certain paradigms baked into it, right? Most of us are not going to receive or going to build things at the scale at which that makes sense. Most of us are going to be in the human markets that neither Kate nor I have any problems with, right? As long as they're not doing some of these other things, right? So we have to think about the models that might support that. Um, maybe stop reading so many books on tech startups because they are a very small percentage <laughs> of actual business cases. I say that as the owner now of a tech startup, right? Um, sort of two things going on. We've got momentum as the tech startup that's playing by some of those rules. Then we've got productive flourishing, which is not that, right? Um, it's not playing by those rules. So you have to read the sort of stuff with that in mind, because on the PF side, if I'm assuming that there is some point in which there's going to be a 10x payoff and I can invest blood, sweat, and tears now, that means I need to be building PF in a way that someone else would want to buy it. Um, I'm unconvinced that I am building it that way, right, um, in its current form. Um, but that hasn't been part of the intention. Momentum is a different scenario, right? That is an asset that other people can manage. It's independent of me, so it has different rules. And so what we're talking about here is as you consider different ideas, whether it's selling rusted junk with a, with a dear friend who you just want to find a reason to do something interesting and cool together, um, or, you know, you have several businesses or you have multiple different properties. It might be that each one of those need to have, well, they likely will have different purposes. Purpose informs structure, structure informs so much other things going on there. And so having collect, having collectives, having cooperatives, having partnerships, having ESOPs in your toolkit of things to consider, just helps you think about, think about like, how might this particular thing that I'm doing grow and go forward? And I think there's a piece of it too, that I've thought about more since um, the, the beginning of the pandemic, where, you know, especially in 2020, and sort of the aftermath of like, lockdowns and a lot of businesses getting really rocked is, you know, I talked to so many owners that felt so alone, burnt out, like carrying this huge burden on their shoulders. And it was so overwhelming. And I think, you know, the thing I think about a lot is how the resiliency of the structures we create. So, you know, single person ownership at the end of the day is not as resilient as multi-person ownership. It's not as resilient as bringing your workers into the structure, if that's makes sense for this, you know, what you're doing. Um, so I think there's also an aspect of this that's like, you know, it is thinking about what structure matches what you're trying to do and the purpose of it. But I think there's also a like shifting out of you know, just our ethos of what we're trying to build, like what kind of economies are we trying to build? Um, because I don't like, I think there was some statistic that, you know, LLC, single member LLC formation went through the roof, like in 2021. And I was like, oh God, that's such bad news. Was my, you know, that's, that's not most people's reaction to that, but it was just like, oh shit, all these like solo individual businesses. And I just, I don't think that's what our economy needs more of right now. Like, I think we need to think more about how, you know, we can benefit more people and build more collective wealth and build more collective resiliency and, you know, serve a different kind of purpose in how we're building the economy. The link I think that you're dancing around is between resiliency and interdependence. We built a lot of our, the entrepreneurial community, right, has put a lot of stock in sort of that solo cowboy, I can do it all myself, right, I don't need other people sort of scenario. And 
that will create a faster business. It's the easiest way sometimes to create a profitable business. Remember, profitable does not necessarily mean wealth creating business. It's the fastest way to go to market. Like it has a lot of that going for it. What it does not have, to your point, is resiliency. Um, so if you're playing a longer game, there becomes a point to where you sort of do have to consider like, one, what am I building? And two, how does it run in these scenarios? How does it run when I'm injured? How does it run when it's July, if you're Charlie, and you don't feel like doing a whole lot, <laughs> right? And it's still, there's some stuff that needs to happen. How does it run if I want to leave? Or is my exit strategy, which many people don't say it this way, but it can be a completely valid exit strategy that when you stop doing it, it stops. It's done, Right. Um, but we just don't make that commitment in advance and not making that commitment leads us to do all sorts of weird things and then not getting what we thought we might get because we didn't make that commitment. Or maybe to put it another way, it's like, if, you know, if we're building these businesses that aren't actually building our individual wealth because they're too small and that's like actually not what they're doing. Um, maybe there's other structures that would serve us all better. Alrighty. So as the guest on today's podcast, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge. Ooh. So based upon what we've talked about and what you're feeling today, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Yeah, I love this question. I would invite the listeners today to just think about one way the structure of your business could shift to more benefit all of the the humans and the communities that it touches. Kate, thanks so much for joining me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I don't know what we'll get into next, but I'm sure we'll get into something. Thanks, Charlie. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Kate. As you're starting to think about either starting a business or changing your business, how might you change it at the purpose structure or at the operating model to more benefit the people you're working with that are helping create the value that is the business itself. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 